Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. This fall, we are studying Genesis, the story of us, and I hope we'll get you thinking about an old story in a new way. When I take groups to the Holy Land, I like to do a little game that I call a get. It's, it's a little like a scavenger hunt, a get, G-E-T, a get. And what I like to do is I like to find things that you can find in the Bible. If you can hold a Bible in one hand and look at something else, I call that a get. And what I have on the screen behind me is a get from Genesis chapter 26. I want to read the 23rd verse to you. It's on page 20 on your table Bibles. From there he went up to Beersheba. That very night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you, and I will bless you, and I will make your offspring numerous for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord and pitched a tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. That's the well. That's the well from Genesis chapter 26. That well is a, is a dig called Tel Beersheba, and it is where Isaac lived. Last week we learned that, that Abraham uh, finally had a boy, and he named him Isaac, and then the promise would continue through Isaac's ancestors, and Isaac moved to Beersheba, and he built a well, and there's the well. Now, that's, that's one thing that's interesting. You're looking at something in the Bible. You're, you're looking right now at a photograph of something from a line of Scripture, and that's a get. But there's something more profound about this well. This well happens in Genesis chapter 26. Looking at this well, I wonder if, if Isaac could have imagined the family drama that had occurred just one chapter before, uh, an event that would change the course of human history within his own family between his own two sons. The lesson this morning is about Jacob and Esau. While Isaac's servants dug this well, I wonder if Isaac could have imagined what had happened. Okay, Isaac had two children. They were twins. The first son was to receive the blessing and the greater share of the father's inheritance and the name. That's the way it worked in those days. The firstborn received the blessing and the family would continue through the birth of that child. The younger son, the twin, Jacob, was smaller. Uh, his name means trickster. Esau's name is Edom, or it means red. Uh, he was a hunter and he, and he was physically imposing in a way that Jacob was not, but Jacob was smart. So what we learn one chapter before this well was dug that you're looking at right now, what we learn is that one day Jacob was cooking a stew as Esau came in from the field. And Esau said, give me some of that stew for I'm famished. This is pretty, pretty close. It's a paraphrase, but it's pretty close to the story. Give me some of that stew for I'm, I'm starving. And Jacob says, first, sell me your birthright. Right? And Esau said, what, what use is a birthright to me? I'm famished. And thus, the Bible tells us, Esau despised his name. He despised his birthright. What's revealed uh, in that little exchange is that Esau is a man who lives for the moment. He lives in his appetites. 
We also learn later on that Esau would disobey his parents again and again and again. They asked him not to marry Canaanite women, and he did. Remember, I like to say that all the Bible is just one story. It didn't matter from page one to a thousand. It didn't matter how arcane or strange or, or, or disconnected to modern life it might be. The Bible is just one story. You're going to be different or you're going to be something else. You're going to be different in the way that God wants you to be different. Or you're going to be something else. You're going to be my people or you're going to do something else. And, and Edom, Esau, he, he never did live within the ethic that God laid out for him, uh, the ethic that God lays out for us at the very beginning of Genesis. Do you all remember chapter 1 when we studied creation together? We learned that in the garden we're given an ethic. It's like a fence around a playground, and as long as you keep these three in tension, you've got a healthy life. If you lose one of them, then life becomes skewed. So we're given vocation, which is something to do right? Adam and Eve, name the animals in the garden. We're given permission, which is creativity. They get to make some choice in this. There's a dance between God's plan for us and and our freedom to create and and be the people that God made us to be. But then there's also prohibition. Don't eat the apple, right? There's a tree in the garden you can't eat. And this ethic that's laid out for us is a model for a healthy life. You have to keep the three in tension. There are some things that we cannot do. If you only have two, vocation and permission, for instance, that's unbridled greed. If you only have permission and prohibition, then you're, then you're up in your head and you're not getting anything done. If you only have vocation and prohibition, then that becomes something evil in the name of religion. I could go on and on and on, but I think I hope you get it. You have to keep the three, and Esau didn't. So that's Esau's story. Jacob, on the other hand, well, Jacob's story is a little more complicated. Does anybody remember the movie Forrest Gump and the feather? Remember, the, remember that? It was one of my favorite things about the movie. The little feather would, would float between scenes, and so you would see that no matter what years would go by, what scenes would happen willy-nilly, there was this little feather that was, that was sort of a constant. Remember through the whole story, from the, from the beginning to the end, Genesis reads a little like a feather in this way because the story just goes all over the place. It begins with the promise our story begins, our, our human story begins with Genesis chapter 12, not Genesis chapter 1 with creation, but rather Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abraham out under a night sky and he says, if you live this way for me and follow me and have faith, then you'll be a, a new kind of human being. And in that way, we're children of Abraham. We're those stars above his head. Well, that story is pretty straightforward, but when you get to Jacob and Esau and, and later the drama between them and then the interplay of, of Jacob and everybody else, well, it's, it's a little like the feather, the, the the promise, it just goes, it just goes a little everywhere. You wonder, you wonder where it's going to land. I need to keep retelling the story. Okay, Esau despised his birthright, but he forgot about it, right? He just lives in the moment. There's a reason why in our marriage service, our marriage service is a little different than other liturgies uh, that I've seen around in other churches. You know, the the cliched wedding response is I do, right? Sometimes we'll call a wedding our the I do's. Uh, in, in our service, we say I will. Because I will is a commitment. It, it's a it's a long haul word. It's a promise. It's 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 a long term thing. I do is a little more of immediate. I'll do sure. I'll do it. I'll do I'll do anything once. Uh, and and so right. And so the I do ness of that is exactly what Esau is doing right here. He despised his birthright, but he forgot. He moved on. He moved on. Well, Jacob didn't. Jacob's the smart one. Now we're told. Uh, later in, in, in the story that Isaac is blind and near death. Now, he's actually, he won't die for another 25 years, but he, I think he was just having a really bad day. And so he didn't feel good, and he was blind. And he's not only blind 
physically blind. He's also spiritually blind. He really can't see that Jacob is really the one with, with, with the goods upstairs and really has the potential to carry on the family name because it's simply just not done that way. Plus, he loves his boy. He loves that he, that he hunts for him, and, and he has a kinship with Edom in a way, even though Edom is not, he does not have the, the horsepower, you might say, that Jacob does, and Jacob never forgot. So Rebecca, having her own favorite child, and this is just the ultimate story of family dysfunction. It's not really pretty, but Rebecca aids and abets this situation and helps Jacob trick uh, Isaac into giving him the blessing. Remember the story from your Sunday school days? He puts on Esau's clothes, and he puts goat skins on his arms so that his arms would be hairy, and then he cooks food like Esau would cook, and then kneels before old blind Isaac, and, and he tricks him into the blessing. Jacob comes from a tradition in ancient literature called the trickster. There's a tradition for this. A good example of this would be Homer's Odysseus. He's always referred to as the wily Odysseus or the crafty Odysseus. And in ancient literature, the trickster is always admired uh, for his tricks. The Bible's more ambivalent about Jacob's tricks. The Bible is clearly, if you read the text carefully, is uncomfortable with uh, with, with Jacob as he is. Well, we know how the story goes. Isaac gives the wrong child the blessing. Esau returns from the field, and it's already been done. What's been given can't be ungiven. And so that Esau screams in pain, right? Screams in rage and wants to kill Jacob, quite rightly, which forces Jacob to be on the run. And it's here that he has a dream. Now we'll read a little scripture together. I want y'all to, if you've got a table Bible, just turn the page over to Genesis chapter 28, beginning with the 10th verse. Jacob left Beersheba, that's the town of the well that we just saw this morning. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down on that place. I had a pillow like that once. (laughs) All right. He dreamed that there was a ladder up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven. The angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and the Lord stood beside him and said... I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring, and your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and your offspring. See, the feather has landed on him now. Know that I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I've done for what I've promised you. And then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Well, we've all known the st- we all at least know the story of Jacob's ladder. We sort of know the song. I mean, we've all learned about Jacob's ladder in a, in Sunday school when we were little kids. But I like to say that if Genesis is the story of us, this dream may be more important than we know. It reveals a whole lot about Jacob and his own relationship with God, and perhaps ours as well. First of all, think about what's happening to Jacob at the time of the dream. He's on the run, and so this dream takes place in a place that's unexpected. Isn't that how dreams usually work, right? Isn't that how God usually works? God comes to us in a place that's unexpected. I mean, we expect to find God in church. We come marching into church when we need to get gas in the tank, and I hope we always get it. But the good stuff of our lives, the the, the stuff that, that really rocks us to the core, that usually comes right around the corner. It comes with the sunrise, or it comes with a phone call. It comes uh, with a dream in the dead of night. And so this place is unexpected. It's an ordinary place. It doesn't even have a name yet. 
Jacob's vulnerable here. He's a fugitive. His, his tricks have got him into trouble. I mean, his brother really does want to kill him. This, there's nothing spiritual about this story. Jacob stole the blessing. The trickster now is on the run. It's not pretty, and he has no societal protection. See, back in, back in their world, if you left your family, you had no one to look out for you. This is why you would enter into covenants with powerful neighbors, but Jacob has no covenant yet until the dream, which is revealed he has a covenant with his God. But until then, he's a dead man walking. The dream is God's formal invitation to accept Jacob into the to family and ask him to be different. The dream is, is God's formal saying to Jacob, yes, I'm going to ask you to continue the blessing. You will take the feather forward. Uh, but there's a little more to it than even that. Psychologists will identify two different types of morality, two types of morality hardwired within us. One is the morality of wit, and the other is the morality of goodness. This makes sense if you think about it. The morality of wit is simply our own smarts and our own bootstraps. That's the morality of knowing how to figure stuff out and how to win. That's the morality of getting ahead. That's the zero-sum morality of kind of winner-take-all. That's the morality that don't stop, you know, because somebody might be gaining on you. That's, that's the morality that wears us out and kills us slow and burns us all out. But that's, that's what we all have. But we also have within us a morality of goodness. And that's the morality that delights in others winning. That's the morality that dies in order to live. That's the morality that gives in order to get. That's the morality that Jesus invites us into again and again in the Gospels, right? If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to be served, you have to serve. And so that's the morality of, that's the morality of human goodness. And so I agree with many rabbis who read this story and, and see this latter as representing the Jacob who, is, who he is now, but also who he can be. The angels ascending and descending up and down the ladder represent the Jacob in his own human development, from the morality of wit into the morality of goodness. It's the story of his life, or it's the story of his life that can be, as he begins to discover the tension between vocation and permission and prohibition. Uh, ladder, by the way, the, I know that I have a picture behind me of sort of the traditional idea of a ladder that looks like the, the angels have gone off to paint a wall or something, uh, right? Uh, but the ladder could actually mean a ramp. They had ziggurats back in those days. You might remember from your Western Civ classes, they were terraced to terraced pyramids, and they represented the imperial religion of the day. In other words, a ziggurat could be the most impressive god structure that anybody could ever imagine uh, in their world. And so the word easily could mean that kind of structure. Uh, but the more important thing is that this ziggurat or this ladder means that heaven touches earth. You know, more important than the angels ascending and descending on the ladder is the promise itself. I want y'all to look with me uh, back at Scripture. If you've got a table Bible, I'm going to read something to you. It's verse 15 in Genesis chapter 28. This is what God says. Know that I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. So what happens in the dream is that God reveals that he's not far off somewhere, but actually he's down on earth with, with the rest of us. And this is a key part of the importance of why we read the Bible. Alone of the ancient people, the Hebrews came up with this big idea, and they were the first ones to say it, the first ones to claim it, and this is why the story is the story of us that asks us to be different. It's simply this. This Bible says that God loves me. This Scripture says that God knows the dreams I had last night. The Scripture says that the God who created the cosmos cares about my life. Now, other ancient people believed in 
gods, little g gods, but to say that the gods loved you would be nonsensical to them. They wouldn't anymore, they wouldn't anymore dream that a God would love them or care for them. They really wouldn't even want them to interfere in their own existence. What they might have is an incantation so they could get stuff like rain or a baby. But other than that, they did not care. So, God loves me. I know you by name, and I will keep you. Keep you. Now, if you've got a highlighter on your table, I want you to highlight the word keep in verse 15, because keep is a shepherd's word, right? Keep is a shepherd's word. Now, what I'm going to ask you to do after you highlight keep is I want you to turn with me to Psalm 121. We're going to come back to Genesis uh, chapter 28, but Psalm 121 on page 498, and I want to show you something. Now, remember while you're turning to Genesis 121 where we think all this stuff was written down. 600 years before Jesus' birth, God's people lost everything. They lost their temple. They lost their city. They thought they were going to lose their religion and their identity. But far off in a land of exile in Babylon, they began to write down the stories that they had told for generations. They began to write down the stuff they told their children at their bedsides. They began to write down the stories that they told in worship. And so much of what we call the Bible was written when they lost everything. God's people got busy. Psalm 121 is one of these. It's a shepherd's word. Can you imagine how comforting it would be after you, you live in, in a faraway land, you don't know if you'll ever see your beloved home again. You barely know if you'll keep your own identity as God's people. And this is what the Lord says to you through the song 121 on 498. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot to be moved. He who keeps you, highlight keep if you've got a highlighter, will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you going out and you're coming in from this time forth forevermore. If I counted right, that six keeps. That's a shepherd's word. I will keep you. I'm not only with you, but I'm going to protect you. And even if you can't see it in the moment, I'm going to guide you and I'm going to heal you and I'm going to dream with you and I'm going to cry when you cry and I'm going to laugh when you laugh and I'm going to be near you and you're going to be mine forever. I'm going to keep you. It's a shepherd's word. Of all the prophets in our Bible, I think one of the most important prophets is um, Ezekiel. He's a weird guy. Uh, hard to read, uh, Ezekiel. But what's important about Ezekiel is, I mean, I don't, th- I don't think Ezekiel minds me saying that he's weird. I'll have to face him in heaven one day. But um, but no, I, he's weird. Uh, but but it's, what's important about Ezekiel is he was called to be a prophet in Babylon. See, they thought that you had to live on the land that God gave them in order to be God's people. What they learned in exile, not only did they get their Bible, they also learned that God will keep you wherever you may go. Jacob in exile has a dream. Jacob, I will keep you. I will be with you, and I will keep you. Well, Jacob lives a life within the tension, vocation, permission, prohibition. It's fascinating to me that Jacob gets more ink than anybody else in the Bible except for Jesus. More, he's the only character we know that we know about his early childhood, we know about his, his, his young adulthood, we know about his middle age, we know about his family, and then we know about him as an old man contemplating death. I believe it's because Jacob, the trickster, becomes an exemplar of a life that's not a perfect life, but a life that's possible when we live within the ethic that God gives us, vocation, permission, prohibition. What about Esau? Well, 
if the picture worked behind me, this is what you'd see. Oh, oh my goodness, it came back. Yes, yes. All right, go to the next slide. There you go. Perfect. I got my pointer. Everything is just right on time. Okay, so what you're seeing behind me is a model at the Israel Museum. This is a model at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, and it's a model of what we call the Second Temple, but it's not really the Second Temple. It's really Herod's Temple. It's the place where they worshiped in Jerusalem when during the feast day. See that big tall structure right there? Now my pointer's not working. Ah, there you go, that. That right there, that's the temple. Now, it was the wonder of the ancient world. At least three times a year, the population of Jerusalem would go from 35,000 to a million people, kind of like Tuscaloosa yesterday. All right, so you'd go to a million, and people would go to this structure. It's twice the height of what the Dome of the Rock would be today. It, it, was, it was truly the wonder of the ancient world. And it was, we call it the second temple, but it's really not the second temple. It's not the temple that they rebuilt after they came home from exile 600 years before Jesus' birth. This is the newly remodeled, upgraded Herod the Great temple that was meant to awe and inspire. And it was begun 20 years before Jesus' birth, and it would continue in construction for 80 years. Now, let me tell you about Herod the Great. He wasn't so great. He was more of a great despot. Uh, Herod the Great ruled Judea for about 40 years, and he was a client king of the Romans. And he was, um, he was the master of controlling both commerce with a city called Caesarea Maritima that was a port and a pleasure dome, and it was created using newly uh, discovered a newly discovered form of underwater concrete that the Romans had developed. He literally fashioned the coast under his own will and created vast amounts of wealth. He controlled commerce. He controlled defense. He built a super weapon called Masada out of the desert, which he could he could hold up in there for for a hundred years and no one could get to him. Uh, he controlled defense. He controlled the money, and he also controlled their thought by taking what had been uh, the house of God and turning it into a wonder. I'm told by my archaeologist friend that there was a gate that had a Roman eagle over it just to remind him that, uh, that he, he did owe uh, his, his clients, uh, or he did owe his bosses, rather, a little bit of patronage, which sounds a little like a logo, if you will, uh, stuck on God's house, and that makes me sad uh, because it meant that the Romans were ultimately in charge. I'm also told by my archaeologist friend they had another sign on the side of that thing that said, your tax dollars at work. All right, now... Why am I telling you all this? Because Herod was a man who lived within his passions. Herod murdered many of his wives and many of his children, and he died alone, and he was a terrible guy. And guess where Herod was from? He was from Edom, which is Esau. And to quote my Israeli friend, Edan Geva, this is, no, this is no great stretch of theology to say this. If you don't have God in your life, you just get weird. All right, now that, that, right, and so this opulence, this excess, this nightmare ruler that they lived under for 40 years, this is what happens when you don't live the way that God wants you to live, when you're not different the way that God wants you to be different, when you don't live within vocation, permission, prohibition. Uh, he's all vocation and permission, no prohibition. Anything goes with Herod. Now, this is kind of fun to show you. Now, this is the model of the temple. You see the height of it right here. You see this rock right outside the city wall, just right in the shadow of the temple itself. See this rock right here? Okay. I love my friend Don's accent when he says this. This is called Golgotha. 
All right, Golgotha. This is Golgotha. This is Golgotha, right? This is where this is where the Romans would execute criminals. It's just right outside the city gate. You don't have to walk. You don't have to walk too far. You just need a rock right outside of the city gate so you can kill somebody, and you want everybody to see it. You don't want to be too far away. I have this lovely Victorian Bible at home with all these little woodcuts and. There's a picture of, of, of Calvary's hill on a windswept hill far outside the city walls of the grassy, and it reminds me of the old hymn that I grew up with. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. It ain't far away. Uh, it's right here in the, in the shadow of the temple, which brings me back to something else cool that I want to show you in the Bible, which is 2 Samuel chapter 7. You've got a table Bible, just turn to page 245. One of the most important passages in the Bible nobody ever talks about is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Anybody been digging around in 2 Samuel lately uh, in, in the mornings? If you have, you get a gold star. I don't read it all that much either. I'm going to set up the passage that I'm about to read to you. King David, greatest king they ever had. Actually, he was like the only great king they ever had. It was all downhill after David. But David had a unified government. He had a capital city. And in gratitude for all the blessings that David had, he wants to build God a house. He wants to build him a house. And so 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 4, Nathan, who's the prophet, who speaks the truth to David again and again, says this. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel in Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent and in a tabernacle. And whenever I've moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel who commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. And I have cut off your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And he goes on and on. And it sounds a lot like Jacob's dream. He reminds him, I don't want this house. Well, kings being kings, <laughs> they don't listen. And so David didn't do it, but Solomon did it. And then the house ended up being so expensive that you can read this in the Bible. It's not a pretty story, but remember the feather, kind of the blessing just kind of floats around even when the story's not pretty. They build the temple and it splits the kingdom. It splits the kingdom. It's because of the temple. Then the temple puts the people of Judah in the crosshairs of foreign rulers who want the temple, and they attack them so that they can take the temple, and then they go off into exile because they lost the temple, and then they move back to Jerusalem, and they rebuild the temple. And you can read about that rebuilding time in Ezra and Nehemiah, but they're sad because the temple's not as nice as it was back in the day when Solomon built the temple, and they cry over that, and then Herod takes the temple, and he turns it into this travesty, which is industrial religion with, with a million people cycling in and out of this thing and, and, and industrial Baptist trees to wash you as you come up there and spend money when you come in from out of town and, and, you, and you're, you're buying animals for the sacrifice and there's a smoke of a thousand fires and it's the best run nonprofit in the ancient world but God didn't want all that. He said in second chapter, Second Samuel chapter 7, I don't want this house. I'd never wanted this house and in Mark chapter 15, Jesus dies on that rock staring at the house and in Mark 15 we're told that the veil of the temple which which separated the holiest place in the building the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom which only God can do and God finally says in effect I told you I don't want this house 
I don't want this house. I never wanted this house. I want you. That's the story of Jacob and Esau. Which one are we going to be? Jacob or Esau? We're going to be different. We're going to be something else. I'll let Don's word be the last word. We don't have God in our lives. We get pretty weird. Amen. Our mission is to be an open, inviting, and serving community in which Jesus Christ is the center of our life and the gospel is modeled and proclaimed in word and sacrament.